0: The following sermon audio is from Love City Church, Cincinnati. More audio and information about Love City Church can be found at www.mylovecitychurch.org. Turn with me, if you would, to Psalm chapter 24. Uh, Okay, so this, Psalm 24... uh, This psalm was often sung on the first day of the week uh, by the rabbis in the time of Jesus, Uh, and that is actually still done in some synagogues up to this day. Uh, It's a very famous psalm. Uh, It also is included in Christian liturgies and services ever since the time of Jesus. Uh, It it is thought by many, Psalm 24, to have been written by David in, in correlation, probably looking back to the events, but not totally sure, that would make the most sense, but in correlation with the bringing of the Ark of the Covenant into Jerusalem, which we see the account of that in 2 Samuel 6, okay? So if you're not familiar, if the extent of your familiarity with the Ark of the Covenant is a movie with Harrison Ford in it, then let me just help you a little bit understand what's going on, because you may not have got the best information from that source. The Ark of the Covenant was a gold-covered box made to the specifications God had given Moses, and and it represented the the very presence of God among the people of God. Upon it rested the the mercy seat where the atoning blood of uh, sacrifice would be sprinkled. Very important, okay? Uh, And and I want to actually read you a bit of, I'm going to, I've got quite a bit of setup today because I think in order for us to really see the depth of what's communicated in this short psalm. We we need some of this background. So I hope you came ready to work today in God's word. Uh, So I want to read you Exodus 25, uh, just this short excerpt, some of what was said to Moses about the ark. Okay? And I want you to I'm I'm going to there's I'm gonna put some vocal tone Easter eggs in here to try to lead you to see some distinctions between this, what is said in Exodus, and then the account in 2 Samuel 6. So we can kind of understand uh, some of what we're going to then encounter in Psalm 24, okay? So here's Exodus 25. Now they shall construct an ark of acacia wood, two and a half cubits long and one and a half cubits wide and one and a half cubits high. You shall overlay it with pure gold inside and out. You shall overlay it and you shall make a gold molding around it. You shall also cast four gold rings for it, fasten them on its four feet. Two rings shall be on one side of it, two rings on the other side of it. And you shall make poles of acacia wood, overlay them with gold. You shall put the poles into the rings on the side of the ark to carry the ark with them. Vocal tone Easter egg, number one, just in case you didn't catch it. I know you're not supposed to tell when you do Easter eggs, but there, I did I cheated for you. Uh, the poles shall remain in the rings of the ark. They shall not be removed from it. You shall put into the ark the testimony which I shall give you. Then he goes to lay out what goes into the ark, okay? So that's, that's the instructions Moses received about the specifics of the construction of the ark. So now I'm going to read you from 2 Samuel chapter 6, okay? If you're in Psalm 24 and you're a fast Bible flipper and you want to go there with me, great. If not, just listen carefully, Okay. I'm in 2 Samuel chapter 6. This is the account of David first bringing the ark into Jerusalem. All right. So David gathered all the chosen men of Israel, 30,000, and David departed from Baal Judah with all the people who were with him to bring up from there the ark of God, which is called by the name, the very name of the Lord of armies who is enthroned above the cherubim. They had mounted the ark of God on a new cart and moved it from the house of Abinadab which was on the hill. And Uzzah and Ahio, not Ohio, but Ahio, the sons of Abinadab were leading the new cart. So they brought it with the ark of God from the house of Abinadab, which was on the hill. And Ahio was walking ahead of the ark. Meanwhile, David and all the house of Israel were celebrating before the Lord with all kinds of instruments made of juniper wood and with lyres, harps, tambourines, castanets, and cymbals. But when they came to the threshing floor of Nekon, Uzzah reached out toward the ark of God and took hold of it because the oxen nearly overturned it. Okay, So we get got the ark in a cart. An ox stumbles. The ark goes to fall. Uzzah reached out to steady it. And the anger of the Lord burned against Uzzah, and God struck him down there for his irreverence. And he died there by the ark of God. Then David became angry because of the Lord's outburst against Uzzah. And that place has been called Perez Uza to this day. So David was afraid of the Lord that day. And he said, how can the ark of the Lord come to me? And David was unwilling to move the ark of the Lord into the city of David with him. But David took it aside to the house of Obed-Edom, the Gittite. The ark of the Lord remained in the house of Obed-Edom, the Gittite, for three months. And the Lord blessed Obed-Edom and all of his household. Now, did you catch a problem between what we read in Exodus and the instructions given for how the ark was to be handled, and then what we read in 2 Samuel 6 about how the ark indeed was handled. So where are the gold poles and the the men that are supposed to be carrying it by the gold poles? What we have instead is we got a new ox cart. Great. God didn't say anything about putting the ark in an ox cart and hauling it around. This was supposed to be carried with reverence, like, like how royalty would be carried, how a king would be carried around. And it wasn't treated that way. And as a result of that, the thing went to tumble. And then in the whole, the whole picture you're getting is, it, you know, Uzzah's irreverence is, is, is mentioned, but the whole thing is irreverent. They had gotten sloppy. They got too comfortable with God's presence. They, they, got, they got to where they thought they could basically just kind of do this however they want. There was not, but then there's a turn, right? Because that happens, and then it said, and David feared the Lord that day. David didn't even want to move the ark anymore. We're going to stick it in this guy's house until I can figure out what to do. All right? They'd gotten too comfortable, even, catch this, presumptuous. Presumptuous with the presence of God. Like they could just approach him in any way that they see fit. Now, I want you to notice the difference the second time. So we're going to continue in 2 Samuel 6. So they put it in Obed-Edom's house. Now this happens. Now it was reported to King David saying, The Lord has blessed the house of Obed-Edom and all that belongs to him on account of the ark of God. So David went and brought the ark of God up from the house of Obed-Edom to the city of David with joy. And so it was that when those carrying the ark of the Lord marched six paces... He sacrificed an ox and a fattened steer. And David was dancing with the Lord with all his strength, and David was wearing a linen ephah. So David and all the house of Israel were bringing up the ark of the Lord with joyful shouting and the sound of the trumpet. I want you to hold this, because we're going to come back to this idea. Even when doing it the prescribed way, because now we got people carrying the ark, as they should have been to begin with. Even when doing it the prescribed way, they made it six paces, and David offers a sacrifice in acknowledgement of their unworthiness to be in such close proximity to God. There's an atoning sacrifice for sin on this second round. There's a whole lot higher regard for how I'm coming before God's presence in attempt two. Okay? That's, now, you might be like, okay... What, what about Psalm 24? Now, now we're ready to read Psalm 24. Okay, now we've got some of the picture we need to see what's going on here. All right, so I'm in Psalm 24. It's not very long. Let's read it together. The earth is the Lord's and all it contains, the world and those who dwell in it, for He has founded it upon the seas and established it upon the rivers. Who may ascend into the hill of the Lord? Who may stand in His holy place? He who has clean hands and a pure heart, who has not lifted up his soul to falsehood and has not sworn deceitfully, he shall receive a blessing from the Lord and righteousness from the God of his salvation. This is the generation of those who seek him, who seek your face, even Jacob. Selah. Lift up your heads, O gates, and be lifted up, O ancient doors, that the King of glory may come in. Who is the King of glory? The Lord strong and mighty, the Lord mighty in battle. Lift up your heads, O gates, and lift them up, O ancient doors. The King of glory may come in. Who is the King of glory? The Lord of hosts. He is the King of glory. Praise God for his word. Now, particularly, perhaps the whole psalm, but particularly this last part, where you see to lift up your heads and that the King of glory may come in. This is a call and response liturgy that has probably been practiced among the, the Hebrews and the rabbis, but e- even in some Christian churches for <clears throat> ever since the time of Jesus and, and even before. And so this, uh, just, just imagine a church, a gathering of God's people being together, and somebody calling out, who is the king of glory? And all the people responding, the Lord strong and mighty, the Lord mighty in battle. Who is the King of glory? The Lord of hosts. He is the King of glory. I for me, just that, that's, that's powerful in and of itself. Just thinking about how, how, we're being, how we're being trained in a kind of call and response liturgy like that. And, and I, don't, I don't know, maybe we'll do it. Amen. Hallelujah. So verse 1 and 2. <clears throat> let's, let's say this first. All right. It says, the earth is the Lord's and all it contains, the world and, and those who dwell in it. For he has founded it upon the seas and established it upon the rivers. You know, Verse two, obviously, David is thinking back to the creation account, right? The Spirit of God hovered over the, the waters. It was it was water first. And then, and then there's land. It's interesting. You know, there's not a whole lot of reason to think David had traveled too far outside of the geographical area where, uh, you know, kind of the the center of history is unfolding, that being Israel and the surrounding area, the land of Canaan and all that, Mediterranean. So uh, the fact that he's able to talk about land kind of being set in the seas, the seas being like they didn't have a globe back then, you understand. So maybe some even special revelation from God in, in the way that that's said. But I do want to say first, because someone could hear the earth is the Lord's all it contains, the world and those who dwell in it, and, and could have a, a question arise that, that would stop that from hitting them with the full force that it should and have the effect that it should, because you may know that elsewhere in your Bible, there's language that says that, that Satan is the god of this world. Now, what's important to remember about that is that, And I'm thinking of 2 Corinthians 4, chapter 4, uh, where Paul says Satan is the god of this world. But when it says that, the G in God is a little g, which is real important. Because though Satan has some level of temporary <clears throat> freedom to operate in God's world in this time frame, uh, the earth is still the Lord's and all it contains, and all who dwell in it. You know, <clears throat> there, there, there is no question that there is some degree in, in the laying out of God's sovereign plan of redemption that allowing Satan some leash is, is a part of how God is accomplishing his ultimate plan of us and him forever, with no chance of us having to repeat this whole middle part between creation and the consummation of our eternal habitation with him. However, uh, <clears throat> you know, when, when Satan came to tempt Jesus, And said, hey, I can give you all the kingdoms of the world. Jesus didn't say, no, you can't. He just answered back with the word of God and said, we worship him alone, right? I'm not not bowing before you. So there is this element in which Satan is, is the god of this world, but he's really, he's like a dog on a leash. And the Lord is even better at making his dog mind than Caesar Milan, all right? It helps me in trying to sort all this out to just, to just think about Satan on all fours on a leash, trying to get out of line maybe of what God has got him doing, and, and the Lord just going, Psh. you know, <laughs> Satan's on his back doing that submission thing to the, the leader of the pack, you know what I'm talking about? Because that's God. No question, the earth is the Lord's and all it contains. Why? Because uh, he made it. <laughs> he established it upon the seas and upon the waters, right? When you make the thing, you get to rule the thing. When you ex nihilo out of nothing, create all things, you get to say, this is how it's going to go. And anybody with a lick of sense will go, yep, that's right. <laughs> yes. I'm going to listen to that guy. He probably knows what's up. Uh, okay. So hopefully we can move that out of the way of this hitting us with the full force that it should. Um, now, let's talk about <clears throat> some of the implications of this idea. Guys, if you have that picture, would you put that up for me, please? This is a rare 15th century handmade Chinese porcelain bowl. And the Chin- part of why uh, ancient Chinese porcelain is so prized and expensive is because they were one of the first to develop some of the techniques that would lead to such beautiful pieces uh, and pieces that have the durability that they do, the, the way they work the clay, the way they were able to hand paint designs, like, you know, because this, this isn't mass produced, you understand, when it's the 15th century. A craftsman took a long time to make this thing. Okay? Uh, now, this particular bowl was found at a yard sale, I think in 2017, for $35. It was then sold, I think, Sotheby's. Uh, sold it then for $722,000. So in using this analogy, I realize the risk that I'm running is to have many people jumping on Facebook Marketplace looking for old bowls (laughs) while I'm trying to preach you this sermon. Uh, Just... You can do that later. I'd prefer if right now you're not on Facebook Marketplace or looking for the nearest antique shop. Okay, um, it could be you. You know, hallelujah. And I, I I hope it is. Find the next <laughs> ancient Chinese porcelain bowl uh, for thirty-five bucks. But in any case, <clears throat> here's here's why I wanted to bring this to your attention. Oh, also, if if there's some of you that are like, if if I I don't know if there's anybody in here that's like fine art experts or whatever, and you know, if, if right now what you're thinking is well, oh, poster Vince, that's not even that great of an example. These kind of bowls have gone for millions of dollars. Like, I, I know, I know, I already, I looked at that. This one just particularly what, is what I wanted to show you for a reason, all right? So thank you for your fine art knowledge. <clears throat> here's, the po- here's the point. Here's, what, here's a question I want to ask you. I want you to really seriously think about this. And then I'm going to ask you to help me preach. I'm going to to ask for input from you. But here's here's the question. Whoever bought this bowl from the auction and paid $722,000 for it, what is your reaction if what they decided to do is, okay, we're going to buy this bowl, and we're going to take it, and we're we're going to place it on our bathroom floor, and now we're going to use this bowl as our toilet. We're not going to use the toilet anymore. This bowl is going to be our toilet. And so we're going to defecate and we're going to urinate in this bowl from now on. That's going to be the purpose of this bowl for the rest of its existence. That's how we're going to choose to use this priceless artifact. If that's what somebody did with it, now here's where I want you to help me preach. I want some words. What are some words you would use to describe that action? Taking this priceless, handmade, 15th century artifact, And now using it as a toilet. Foul. Foul, That's a great word. Give me more. Nasty. Amen. That's a good word. Irreverent. Irreverent. That's a very good word. It's despicable. (laughs) Was that a you have to do what you have to do? Mm, We're not going to use that one. We got foul, despicable, nasty. Give me more. Foolish. That was on my list. Tainted. Okay. Anything else? Profane. It's ridiculous. Absurd. We got a human thesaurus back here. Give someone else a chance. sis. I. You, I know you got it. You and me are. We. We're on the same point here. <laughs> if you ever need to think of a word, call call this sister. She's got them. Anybody else? abominable. That's a hard word to say. Did I say it right? Like the snowman, abominable, abominable, abominable. Yeah, that's good. Okay. So, all right, good. Then you guys got the point that I think clearly we all kind of think this is, it's disgusting. It's ignorant. It's foolish. It's wasteful. Here's what I want you to see. Doing that Is just like what we do when we deny verses one and two. It's virtually the same thing. It's taking that bowl and using it for that purpose. Every time we deny the truth and implications of verses one and two—that the earth is the Lord's and all it contains, that He's the one that made it. How do how do I see that? When we worship creation instead of its creator, we are soiling and we are spoiling the gift that we have been given. When we love money and use people, it is a disgusting departure from God's good design and purpose. When we make sex just about carnal pleasure instead of procreation and connection and commitment within covenant marriage, it is an abhorrent misuse of God's good gift to us. When husbands are harsh with their wives instead of being gentle and loving, it is a foolish waste of an opportunity to show forth the love of God to her and the world. When wives find every opportunity to tear their husband down instead of build him up, it is the height of self-destructive ignorance. All of our prideful rebellion and sin against God's absolute ownership and sovereignty over all creation, all of our sin and rebellion is disgusting, it's ignorant, it's foolish, and it's wasteful. Every bit of it. And it leads to us not asking the right questions. Psalm 24 does ask the right question. Who may ascend into the hill of the Lord and who may stand in his holy place? This, of course, is not an assessment of your mountain climbing skills. It's not the point. The second part makes it clear. Standing in the holy place, is, it's, it's talking about his holy presence. And if you think back to 2 Samuel, this is part of why many think this connects to the events of bringing the ark in Jerusalem, because what was David's question after Uzzah touched the thing and died? Who, who can, who, how can I have this ark come near me? Who can, who can stand in the holy presence of God? Who can? It's a good question, but this is not a question you will hear asked nearly enough, particularly in our current Western cultural climate. There's probably many reasons for this, but I'm, I'm going to say that mainly the reason we will not hear the question asked among ourselves very often, this question, who may ascend into the hill of the Lord, who may stand in his holy place, is mainly because that question has been replaced with another question that tragically leads to a lot of confusion. Instead of, who may stand in the holy place, who may ascend into the hill of the Lord, instead, we clamor and yell the question, what must I do to be happy We say it all, we ask the question all different kinds of ways, sometimes in actually vocalizing it, sometimes just in the way we live and what we pursue. But the question we are oftentimes being encouraged to ask, and that we oftentimes do ask, is not who can stand in the presence of this God, but what must I do to be happy, to feel fulfilled? And why am I saying that question leads to confusion? Because friends, the first question was really the only shot you ever had at answering the second. Who may ascend the hill of the Lord? Who may stand in his holy place? Asking that question and coming to the right conclusion is the only way you're actually going to answer the second question that gets in the way. Happiness, fulfillment, joy, peace, purpose. All the things humans were created for and created to get in the context of their relationship to a God who is the source of these things you see, you see the problem? We, we, we try to jump to, to what He gives instead of who He is. We try to jump in getting, getting the blessings of God not getting God, not realizing that the, the whole key to this thing is, is I need to be in close proximity to Him. That's where there's blessing. That's where there's hope. That's where, an under, that's where clarity begins to come about what I'm even here for. Why do I even exist? Much less how am I going to grab a hold of something like happiness or joy in this life? <clears throat> the porcelain bowl analogy and the strong language about our sin and rebellion is, is not meant to bludgeon us into condemnation this morning. That was not the point of that. The point of that is it's meant to help us ask the right questions and come to the right answers. Because sometimes we don't see our sin and rebellion as disgusting and wasteful and foolish as it really is. It's meant to eliminate, that that whole analogy was meant to eliminate confusion and to increase our hope in and our love for our Heavenly Father. Friends, the the incomparable might and sovereignty of God is only a comfort to us if we know that he is also good. And only then will we want to open the gates of our hearts and welcome him all the way in. We need to know that God, the earth is the Lord's and all it contains. He is mighty enough to speak all things into existence. And not just that he created it, and, and set things in motion, and then was tired and had to rest, but sustains all of creation by his might and power. You get to be the boss when you're that guy. But also, what should be the greatest cause of rejoicing in the heart of every person that, that the idea reaches them, is that we don't just have a God mighty enough to do that. We have a God good enough to do it with love for us in mind, In how he sustains it. And what the end goal of the whole thing is. Which is us and him forever. So who can stand in the presence of our altogether good and holy and perfect creator? That is the question, isn't it? Here's the answer. He who has clean hands and a pure heart. Who has not lifted up his soul to falsehood and has not sworn deceitfully. Clean hands, pure heart. First of all, uh, does that mean that you use a lot of hand sanitizer and you can sing all the Disney songs? I've got clean hands and a pure heart. I'm generally kind and amicable, and people tend to like me. I have a, I have a good heart. Is that, is that what that means? Clean hands is a reference to our actions, all of our actions, our deeds, okay? That's what clean hands is talking about. Pontius Pilate washed his hands, but they were not clean, okay? He's talking about all of our actions. Clean hands and a pure heart, that's a reference to even not just our actions, but that our motives are also unstained by sin. So we need clean actions and we need clean motives, purity across the board, Somebody that's never been deceived into giving ourselves to false idols. Those that have not lifted up their soul to falsehood. That's what it's talking about. Never been deceived into giving ourselves to false idols. And I don't mean that you pledged some kind of verbal allegiance to some demonic false pagan god. I'm just talking about the, the never having been tricked into giving our affection and our attention our time, talent, treasure, into lesser things. Creating, uh, worshiping created things instead of the creator. That's never happened. That, that, that needs to be true if you're going to stand in the holy hill. Okay, And you've never made a false promise. Translation. Nobody. Who can stand in his holy place? You can make a little note in your Bible if you want. He who has clean hands and a pure heart, who has not lifted up his soul to falsehood and has not sworn deceitfully. You can summarize that with nobody. If you read that and thought, oh yeah, that's probably clean hands, pure heart. Yep. Never lifted up my soul to falsehood. Never sworn deceitfully. Yeah, I, yeah, I get to stand in the presence. You missed the point. <laughs> Terribly. Nobody, but, but wait, there is one with totally clean hands and a pure heart, who never lifted his soul up to another and never swore in falsehood. It's Jesus, and he is willing to be sacrificed so his blood could atone for our sin and imperfection, that we then may come close to our mighty creator God and not die as Uzzah did when he irreverently touched the ark, because that is what should happen aside from some atoning work, aside from some, something shifting and changing in where things are, because, because my hands are not clean. My motives are not totally pure. I, I am not free of the temptation and, and even the, the action of giving my allegiance and affection to others, besides the only one who deserves it. None of us are completely free of that. None of us are totally clean, and so something has to happen if we're ever going to stand in his holy place, if we're going to ever ascend the holy hill. That is why Jesus had to be willing to be sacrificed, that his blood could atone. Someone had to pay that price. Sin does lead to death. But you could ask, this would be a good time to do it. Why, why is the wages of sin death? Does does the punishment fit the crime because we're not just we're not saying that every sin as as it's unfolding doesn't have the effect that Uzzah touching the ark did it's, it's not physical death it's even it's worse than that the wages of sin is 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 spiritual death eternal death eternal separation from the God who is life so so is is our is, is the wages of sin being death, it does, does the punishment fit the crime? Well, that's, that's part of why we needed to start the way we started the psalm. Thinking about the bowl and what it would be to use that thing as a toilet and understanding that it's no different. When we, when we rebel against the good purposes that God has established and, and use things in ways they shouldn't be used, our bodies, our resources, all, all of it, the earth that he's given us to inhabit. So does the punishment fit the crime? In order for us to understand that properly, seeing our sin as heinously as we should is step one, and then seeing God as as magnificently holy as he is is step two. Seeing those in their proper place is part of how we can come to the conclusion not not just because God said so, but starting to really be able to see oh actually okay, yes, it, it actually makes sense that the wages of sin is death. What else could it be in addition to that when you when you begin to realize what what we 're dealing with here, friends think about this Dar- darkness cannot integrate with light do you understand if if there is like if 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 darkness was even something I could hold in my hand, which it's not, but if it it was, and I tried to thrust it towards these bright lights in front of me, what's going to happen to the darkness? Can it get there? What if I do it really fast? What if I throw it really hard? And again, it's it's even nonsensical what I'm saying because I can't have a ball of darkness. Darkness cannot move near to light. By their very nature, one dispels the other. Okay. God is light and sin is darkness, and light always kills darkness. That's part of what this looks like. It isn't that God, in his eternal wisdom, arbitrarily sets some limit that, hey, here's what's going to happen. Sin is going to lead to death. This has, it, it has to do with the fundamental nature of how things are. God is light. Sin is darkness. Light will kill darkness every time. It's not even that God has to actively come and bring this punishment of death. He is light, and darkness isn't coming near him. Darkness isn't making it up the holy hill. You with me? That's part of why the wages of sin is death. But God in his great mercy has made it possible for, listen to me, what was dark to become light? What was dead to become alive? What was wretched to become to become righteous. God has made it possible for that which was dark and dead to become alive and light. Because light and light can come together. There's nothing stopping that. How does that happen? It's by faith. If we will trust God when he says, a perfect and spotless sacrifice pays the price of death on our behalf. When, by faith, if we will trust that God, what God has said is, The wages of sin is death, but there can be a substitute. The blood of a sinless, spotless sacrifice can substitute. And if you will put your faith and trust in the fact that I have said this will do, then you, by that very trust, by that faith, can go from darkness to light. That's that's how the miracle occurs. David had to sacrifice an ox and a steer as they were moving the, covenant, or the, uh, the Ark of the Covenant towards Jerusalem. And under the Old Covenant, that was how one acknowledged their sin and need for mercy. That's part of what the deal, the, the difference between tossing the Ark in the back of the ox cart, and let's roll up to Jerusalem, and they were celebrating, they were happy, but it was almost too jovial. It was, there was too much presumption upon God and his presence. They forgot we're not dealing with just, this is, God ain't Santa Claus. This is the creator of all things, and he deserves reverence upon reverence upon reverence. And it's not even as if he had to exert some special force for death to be the result of approaching him the wrong way. That is just what happens when you approach him the wrong way. There can only be one outcome. When darkness, not covered with the, an atoning sacrifice and thus made light, when darkness tries to come to light, hey, I'm here, take me as I am. Light does that to darkness every time. This isn't, this isn't Zeus, where God's waiting for you to mess up with a lightning bolt. Got him. Darkness just can't touch light, because light kills Darkness. This is the nature of things. That's not to say God can't sovereignly dole out judgment as he sees fit and in specific ways. Absolutely he can and does. But we also have the promise of his word that even in his judgment always is his mercy. His judgment and his, is always it's, it's pushing people towards. We know the ultimate, the ultimate desire of God He is not slow as some count slowness. He is patient, willing that none should perish. Some will perish. Some will choose darkness all the way until they have no choice but for that darkness to come up against that light and the inevitability of what happens then happens. That will will be the case, but God has revealed his will about it. He wants people to love him and understand how much he loves them. He does. David sacrificed an ox and that's the way in the Old Covenant one acknowledged their sin and need for mercy. Under the New Covenant, we can trust in the final and perfect sacrifice of Christ. It is, it is by faith that this miracle occurs and allows us to come close and to stand in the holy place and in the presence of a holy God. The, the difference between Old and New Covenant, it was, still, it, was, it was trust in what God had said, that a sacrifice can atone for sin, and, and, and by trusting in what God has said, you can be made righteous. That's, that's always been how that works. The difference was there, was there was the additional work of adherence to the Old Testament sacrificial system where Jesus went ahead and did all the work. I didn't have to go get a spotless lamb from my flocks to be able to come in here today with confidence I'd be welcomed into the presence of God. I just had to trust that Jesus is that final spotless lamb, and that everything he said he would do for me is true. There's no work left for me to do. I just all I have to do is trust him. And boy, am I glad that's true? Verses five and six: He shall receive a blessing from the Lord and the righteousness and righteousness from the God of His salvation. This is the generation of those who seek Him, who seek Your face, even Jacob. And you say uh, "Selah," it's, it's most people think, and it, I would agree with this. It's 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 purposefully put in there. Sometimes that would be, um, you know, maybe maybe someone would be doing a sick harp solo or something during that period. But it could be accompanied by music. But it's, it, the main point is stop and think. Stop and contemplate what you just said. This is a time for meditation upon the principles before you move on. Pause is another way to think of that. Okay? so And there is plenty to think about in these first six verses. What we see in verses 5 and 6, the superiority of the new covenant is seen here as we consider these verses. Righteousness and blessing were a result of obedience under the old covenant. Got that? They were a result of obedience under the old covenant. And and when I'm saying that, at least obedience to the sacrificial requirements, right? We did have the 10 commandments. We did have the 613 laws. There there were many requirements, but at the end of the day, what it came down to was, were you going to trust in the provision God had given for you when you don't keep all the 10 commandments and the 613 laws and everything else perfectly, right? So it it came down to obedience to that sacrificial system, all right? Uh, Under the new covenant, Obedience is a result of the righteousness. So righteousness and blessing were a result of obedience under the Old Covenant. Under the New Covenant, obedience is a result of the righteousness. There's an inversion. Obedience is a result of the righteousness, not righteousness being a result of the obedience. And this is righteousness and blessing that we receive as a free gift if we place our faith in Christ. And this is why... You know, we should, as a church body, be fairly familiar with these ideas as we just spent 26 weeks in the book of Hebrews. And one of the primary thrusts of the argumentation to that entire book is the superiority of the new covenant over the old. So we've been talking about this. So I won't spend a ton of time unpacking what that means. Uh, But one thing I do want to say is this incredible inversion, okay, from righteousness and blessing being the result of obedience to obedience being the result of the righteousness and blessing, <clears throat> it, it should not lessen. That inversion, it should not lessen, but it should infinitely increase our desire to obey the will and law of God. I think sometimes people hear, oh wow, that new covenant stuff sounds pretty cool. That means it actually doesn't matter that much what I do. Wrong implication. It should not, to see what God has done for us in Christ should not lessen our desire to obey. It should infinitely increase it. Because it it, it reveals more of his goodness and more of why we can trust him and not be disappointed. This very psalm was on the mind of Paul as he laid out some of what it looks like to have clean hands and a pure heart in 1 Corinthians 10, uh, he lays out the freedom that we have in Christ to eat anything, and then he quotes this psalm. He says, because the earth is the Lord's and all it contains. All right? But then he goes on to say, so he's like, basically, because of of Christ, and and the the major uh, battleground of the day that he was addressing this issue of conscience was eating meat sacrificed to idols. Okay, so he's kind of talking about how to deal with that. And, and his point is, I have freedom in Christ. Like, if, if they sell meat from the pagan sacrifice altar in the market for 50% off, that's awesome, <laughs> right? Like, go, go, basically, he's saying, in Christ, the, de- the demons aren't even real, the, or, or, you know, like, who they think they're sacrificing to isn't real. It, the, the earth is the Lord's and all it contains. That, you, can pr- you can thank God for that meat and eat that meat. But, he says... If it will offend the conscience of someone else, we should put down our freedom and consider them. That's the major point of the whole deal, okay? And so what that shows us is, part of what it looks like practically to have clean hands and a pure heart is that the law of love is what guides us and binds us as we follow Jesus. The law of love, which means I'm always preferring you above myself that if me eating this meat is going to bother your conscience, I know I'm free in Christ to eat the meat. I know I am. And I know you actually could be too. But where, if where you are is that you are, that is not what, what, what your conscience is saying, and you're bothered by the, if I ate the meat, then just because I want to love you and care more about how, where you're at than where I'm at, then, then all right, we're having vegetables for dinner. Hallelujah. And if I'm really walking in the Spirit in love, I won't even be grumpy about vegetable dinner. <laughs> we want to talk about the work of the Spirit? Amen. I'm kind of glad that issue's not something we're dealing with real heavily today, aren't you? I feel like I'd be in a lot more veggie dinners and having to need a lot more help from the Spirit Accurate act right about it. <clears throat> The law of love is what guides us and binds us as we follow Jesus. I want to submit this to you, make a note somewhere. I, I want you to read 1 Corinthians 10 in its entirety this week in light of Psalm 24. And think about, think about how much Psalm 24 was informing the way Paul was instructing the Corinthian church in 1 Corinthians 10. You'll, you'll, it's much more even than what I just said. It's much more than the fact that he directly quotes Psalm 24. You, you, see, you see the implications of Psalm 24 coming out in the practical application, the pastoral instruction of 1 Corinthians 10, which is how the word of God should <laughs> be used in our lives. What do you know? Okay. Verses 7 through 10. Now there's emphasis here, repetition for emphasis, and that's common in Hebraic poetry and sometimes literature broadly. So to some degree, there is some slight variance, but it's like, well, isn't it saying the same thing twice? Yes. Yes. But it's because it's real important. And it's because we we want it to be driven into our hearts and minds, oftentimes the way a good song is. Right? All of you have had a song stuck in your head before, right? Man, I wish more of the Word of God was stuck in my head like songs are. And to some degree, that's why the Psalms are so valuable. It is the Word of God. It is theology and doctrine. And, and it has been for the people of God for several thousand years now, a way for the goodness of God, the might of God, the, the care and mercy of God to, to be kind of woven into our, our thinking um, through, through the fact that this oftentimes was accompanied by music. It doesn't sound like music oftentimes in English to us, but this is part of why studying the Psalms is it really does tether us Uh, in some pretty profound ways to the saints that have gone before us. The Psalms are are a precious gift. Here's what these verses say. Lift up your heads, O gates. Be lifted up, O ancient doors. The King of glory may come in. Who is the King of glory? The Lord strong and mighty. The Lord mighty in battle. Lift up your heads, O gates. Lift them up, O ancient doors. That the King of glory may come in. Who is the King of glory? The Lord of hosts. He is the King of glory. So we have the Lord strong and mighty. The Lord mighty in battle. I I hope that the might and the strength of the Lord is a great encouragement to you. I I used to struggle with the idea of the New Testament saying that we in Christ are more than conquerors. Uh, I I can still remember being a very young... Maybe twelve or thirteen, and first encountering that scripture and going, I don't really like that. Cause I'm like, the way I'm wired, the idea of being a conqueror in Christ is very appealing to me. Let's conquer stuff for Christ. Like that, yes. All of those types of language and analogy for how I'm relating to God, like He's He's my commander and, and I'm His soldier, run it. Bet. Let's do that. Uh And so when it said, more than a conqueror, I'm like, what the heck does that even mean? I don't, I just want to be a conqueror for Christ. And it took many years. The Lord finally showed me what he meant. Uh, What it means is when I'm fighting with him, he's, he's the Lord of hosts. He's, he's, he's out in the front. He, he fights the fight. I basically follow behind him and, and bang tambourines and celebrate the fact that he's laying waste to everybody. That's what more than a conqueror is. I just get to be there for the after-fight party, basically, because <laughs> my king doesn't need my help. You understand? My king does as he sees fit to do. My king, when he says, that, okay, enemies, it's time for you to stop doing the thing I was letting you do anyways because it was accomplishing my purpose anyways. Psst, psst, psst. I mean, Jesus is like Caesar Milan on these demons. I'm trying to tell you not worried about nothing. There, when, when the revelation talks about cosmic war and all this stuff, it's, it, it's not really a fight. It's not really a battle. It's just the armies of heaven just trampling everybody that, that would stand in the way. Every force of darkness, every demon in hell, the devil himself, they're, they're all going to realize, oh, I, I, <laughs> I've been a pawn this whole time. Because when they exert all of their might against this Lord of hosts, the one mighty in battle, the one who spoke all things into creation and, and, and just end up flat on their back. Zero, zero resistance. Man, this ain't a yin-yang. This ain't, the, this ain't Emperor Palpatine and Luke Skywalker. Ooh, which one's going to win? I can't tell. The emperor shoots lightning bolts. Maybe he'll win. I'm not sure. No! The Lord is strong and mighty in battle. The earth is the Lord's and all it contains and all who are in it. What he says goes right now and there is no delay. And being more than a conqueror is basically being smart enough to go, I'm with him. (laughs) (laughs) Ha (laughs) ha. I'm in the shofar tambourine crew, man. Flag guy. I didn't just start a flag ministry in this church, in case you were wondering. The answer is no, we're not doing a flag ministry, if, if you thought that's what that meant. I'm not saying anything about anybody that does, it's just that ain't, that ain't what we're doing, all right? <clears throat> different strokes for different folks. Uh, but I'll tell you what. When the day comes and the Lord of hosts is leading his army, they hand me a flag, buddy. I'm going to wave that thing like nobody's ever waved a flag before. I mean, all around. That kind of stuff. Look, because this body's going to be renewed too? Like how my hip just clicked when I did that? That ain't going to happen anymore. He's like... Let me get this knee worked out real quick and I'll keep going. that'll be gone. <clears throat> Amen. Now remember, this psalm was likely written looking back to when the ark was brought into Jerusalem, okay? And I hope that reading 2 Samuel and, and seeing how that played out, was you were then, as we went through Psalm 24, able to see why, why is the question, who can ascend, who can stand in the holy place, and then to see how it talks, man. He who has clean hands, a pure heart, who has not lifted up his soul to another, is not sworn deceitfully. He shall receive a blessing from the Lord and righteousness from the God of his salvation. So, so the fact that David then, round two, okay, we, we, we are going to carry it this time. There is no ox cart mentioned. And we're not taking six steps before we make a sacrifice of atonement, acknowledging that even though we're doing exactly the way we were told to, we still aren't worthy to be holding these poles or anywhere near this God, this good. I'm hoping it's all clicking, and and you see some things in Psalm 24 you've maybe never seen before. <clears throat> and it was so this was likely written David looking back, remembering upon this um, when he brought in the ark in Jerusalem and he led a host of worshipers celebrating God's presence among them. Okay, because he he there is an element in which uh, he was the king leading the hosts there, and, and, and I, we read the part where he was dancing in the linen ephod. It continues to go on. His wife, which was one of Saul's daughters, watching him from the window gets really offended because a linen ephod was, you know, it, it, was, it probably went about this far, a little fabric thing, and David was out there getting his dance on. So she's like, man, you, that was undignified doing that in front of everybody. And David's answer to her basically is like, you ain't seen nothing yet. And you can go read that. Go finish 2 Samuel uh, 6 if, if you want to see more about that. That's not really anything to do with what we're talking about. So, it's cool though. So, it was probably written with a past fulfillment, but it clearly looks forward also to the, the ascension of Christ and his return to the right hand of God after the resurrection. That as, as Jesus ascended back, into the, the hill of Zion, into the, the heavenly abode, right? This, w- this would be the glorious king approaching the gates of heaven, returning from the mission of coming to live and die and rise so that we could be saved. And so there was, a, there was a, it was written looking back, but also looking forward. It likely also looks forward to the, it's likely still looking forward to the great and glorious day when Christ comes to claim all who belong to him. And he leads us into that heavenly city, the holy place where we will forever dwell in the radiant light of God's holy presence. And so this was written looking back. It's already had some fulfillment in Christ's first ascension, but he's going to come back and get us and, and he will lead us as a large host. He will be the Lord of that host. He will be at the head of that army. Us and angels and all who... Their trust is in Christ, and their knee has bowed, and they've declared his kingship. He he will lead them up to that gate, and, and they will let us in. Why? Because we deserve to get in? No, because the right king is at the head of the procession. That's why. Because the right guy is in front. The one, only one, who had clean hands and a pure heart, and never lifted up his soul to another, and never swore in falsehood. And because that one was willing to have his blood be spilled and for that atoning sacrifice to be applied to us if we would trust him. That's why we get to follow him into the gate. If we trust him. There's also an element in which this psalm finds fulfillment every time a man or woman acknowledge that they need a savior and a king. Let me read you this from Revelation chapter three. This is Jesus. Behold, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come into him and will dine with him and he with me. The Bible talks about great rejoicing in heaven every single time somebody goes from darkness to light, from death to life. Every single time somebody acknowledges, man, I, I do not have clean hands and a pure heart. I cannot stand in the holy place of God on my own merit. Every time someone comes to that place, calls out to Christ, opening the door, welcoming him in because they know they need him in there. The Bible talks about great rejoicing in heaven. The angels rejoice every time. Isn't that incredible? And what, and what are they rejoicing? And they're rejoicing every single time in the faithfulness and the goodness and the might of God. The book of Peter says angels still long to look into the depth of the gospel. Angels are still to some degree befuddled how God has pulled this off. They are are still in awe of the fact that God can take sinful, rebels, wretches, cosmic treason committers and turn them into his children. But he's done it. He's promised that if we will trust him, we will walk in righteousness and blessing with him forever. Praise God. Will you pray with me? Father, we come before you in the name of Jesus. Thank you so much for Psalm 24. Lord, thank you for how bright the crimson thread of your gospel is woven throughout this psalm. It's, it's unmistakable when we know how to look for it. Thank you that the earth is yours and all it contains. Thank you that also all who belong, who live in it, ultimately belong to you. Lord, I pray for every single person that has not yet acknowledged that. I pray for every single person right now, Lord, that has, has not yet come to the place of, of knowing that they, they actually don't belong to themselves. They, they have a king whether they will acknowledge him or not. And Lord, I ask that as they grope and they, and they scurry around trying to find something to put hope into, that they, they will fatigue of that search and they will realize all the time you've been knocking at the door. You've been standing at the gate and that if they will open it to you, you will come in. Lord, I thank you there is never any question in your word that if someone will open the door to you in faith of whether or not you will walk in, thank you that you've made clear you want to and you will. Thank you, Lord, that though it's hard to understand sometimes why you've done it this way, you don't burn the door down and force your way in. I trust that in all of your goodness, there, there are reasons why you've done things exactly the way you've done it. I trust, Lord, that even it's, it's hard to understand how you have Satan on a leash and. Exactly how all that works, what, what, what are the, the, all the minute details of your plan and how you will accomplish your will, but Lord, I, I have seen enough, you have explained enough, you have been perfectly faithful enough in enough things for me to leave those parts you have decided not to explain in full detail, to leave those alone and trust the things you have made very clear. You are mighty and you are good and your love and your affection is set upon us. And at the end of the day, that's really what I need to know. I trust you. Lord, we believe. Please help our unbelief. Help us grow in submission. Help us grow in in how convinced we are that obedience to you is where real joy is found. And may we be bold enough to not just live that, but to share that truth with others.